The FDA has announced the set of rules it proposes to enforce for manufacturers to claim that a food product is healthy. The proposed rules are a lot better than the labeling anarchy that currently exists. But do Americans really need health claims on food products? You might think that any relatively unprocessed food from a plant or animal ought to qualify as healthy without needing the FDA to approve it, and you'd be right. But health claims are not about health. They're meant to get people to buy food products, not real foods like fruit, vegetables, grains, nuts, meat, poultry, dairy, eggs, or fish. Food companies love the term healthy because it gets people to buy food products. That was Marian Nessel, a professor emerita of nutrition, food studies, and public health at New York University, a prolific blogger, and the author of the new memoir, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics, reading from her first opinion essay, FDA's plan to define healthy for food packaging. Better than the existing labeling anarchy, but do we really need it? I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO at STAT. Many drugs across the country are at risk of shortage. Eric Edwards, president and CEO of Flow, is here to discuss how they're revamping America's broken medical supply chain. Thanks, Angus. At Flow, we're on a mission to reimagine the essential medicine supply chain from the ingredients to finished products. We're making this possible through continuous flow chemistry and other advanced development and manufacturing processes. Through our smart CDMO services, we help pharmaceutical and biotech companies improve yields, reduce manufacturing costs, and sustain our environment by providing customized services for small molecule APIs and registered starting materials across all stages of development. All done right here in the United States. For more information, visit www.flow-usa.com. That's P-H-L-O-W-USA.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. I have been looking forward to this conversation since we started working on your essay, Marion. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, my pleasure, and thanks for your help with the essay. You know, to give listeners just a little bit of background, your essay was sparked by the Food and Drug Administration's announcement at the end of September of its proposed criteria for using the term healthy on packaged foods. Can these rules be boiled down into a couple simple directions or ideas, Marion? Sure. Um, I don't know whether to say this laughing or crying, but there are two <laughs> criteria. The first one is it has to have food in it. Uh, and the second one is that it has to uh, be below a certain maximum level for saturated fat, salt, and sugar. Um, basically, basically, those are the two criteria. 
Uh, and the, uh, I mean, I, as I said, I don't know whether to laugh or cry because it seems so ridiculous that the FDA has to do this. But this is the result of seven years of effort. Is there something new or good about these, uh, about the proposed healthy label? Yes, it requires food. <laughs> I mean, I was so pleased to see that. What it does is it excludes concoctions of ingredients. For example, it's going to exclude all of the new plant-based products, uh, the plant-based meats and the plant-based dairy products, because those are made of ingredients, not food. And so by food, you mean something from a tree or something from an, a real animal or the like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, fruits, vegetables, grains, beans, nuts, fish, eggs, meat, dairy products, uh, foods, you know, the kinds of things that are on the peripheral aisles of supermarkets and that you probably have to cook in order to eat. You know, doesn't Michael Pollan, the food writer, have a, a interesting term for the non-foods that you're talking about? He does. He calls them food-like objects. <laughs> so I call them techno-foods. You know, they're things that are they're miracles of food technology. And the, um, you know, are they healthy? Are they good for you? Are they better for the planet? We're going to be arguing about those issues for a long time. So don't, don't food companies already make like a whole array of claims on, on food packaging? They do, but they rarely use the term healthy. Um, one of the things about this particular initiative, seven years in the making, is that nobody is using this term. Hmm. Um, uh, kind bars made the mistake of trying to use it, and they got slapped down because their uh, bars had nuts in them, and nuts have more fat than was currently allowed for the use of a healthy claim. And so they did absolutely the right thing, and they petitioned the FDA to take a look at the whole issue, which is what precipitated all of this. But what this is really about is a general acknowledgement that people do not understand food labels and a search for a simple front-of-package designation that will inform consumers about whether a food product is healthy or not healthy. And the uh, most of, the, of those symbols that are on food products uh, identify what you're supposed to avoid in a food product. But the American food industry doesn't like that idea. And they have lots of very expensive lobbyists who do their work in Washington. And so the FDA's attempt to identify products as healthy is kind of avoiding having to do what has been done in Chile, for example, which is to put warning labels on products that are high in salt, sugar, and saturated fat. Real warning labels like this is bad for you or? Yeah, no, a black symbol, um, a big black symbol that has to be on the package for salt, for sugar, for saturated fat and for calories that are too high. And so even somebody who is illiterate or a child who can't yet read can take one look at a food package and say, oh, let's not buy that. I can only imagine something like that would give the U.S. food industry the willies. 
Well, they, it does indeed. And in fact, the FDA about 10 years ago attempted to develop a front of package symbol that would indicate the relative healthfulness of various foods with respect to these same three nutrients, saturated fat, salt, and sugar. Um, and the food industry was so upset about it that they came up with their own scheme, which is currently in use. And if you look hard at the front of processed food packages, you can see what is called Facts Up Front, which was the grocery manufacturers associations end run around the FDA. It's absolutely unintelligible. Nobody pays any attention to it and nobody can understand it. So this is all about packaging, isn't it? Many of the healthiest foods don't come in packages, so nobody's going to be slapping a healthy label on a banana. Oh, they might. <laughs> we'll have to wait and find out. Um, you know, the FDA has excluded uh, Whole Foods from getting involved in the details of this, so we might see healthy labels on avocados. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be interesting. You know, stroll almost any, at not the peripheral aisles, as you pointed out, but almost all the internal aisles of a grocery store, and you can see just how much the food industry likes labels. What, what does it do for them? It sells the product. Um, you go into a grocery store and you look at a package that says no gluten, no sugar, no GMOs, no whatever, and you think, oh, this is a product that's good for me. I'm going to buy it. Um, without looking too carefully at the nutrition facts panel or at the ingredient list. Um, and the, you know, food manufacturers would just assume that you didn't look at the nutrition facts label or the ingredient list, because if you did, you might not buy the product. And in fact, those labels were put on food products in the early 1990s um, when Congress made a deal with the food industry. And the food industry said, okay, you can put those things on our products, but you have to let us use health claims which had, um, up until that time, had not been allowed. And health claims are statements that um, products or the ingredients will help uh, prevent, treat, mitigate specific disease conditions. Uh, the, the FDA has very elaborate requirements for those kinds of uh, for those kinds of labels. And this, there are nutrient content labels that say that a product is high in certain nutrients. And that's what this healthy label is. It's a, uh, it's a form of a nutrient content label and it has very strict rules about it. And it took the FDA a long time to write these rules. You wrote that the proposed healthy rules would exclude things like Fruit Loops and Cocoa Puffs and um, almost all cereals marketed to children. Could the absence of a healthy label put a dent in that marketing or is that just already out there? Well, there's no healthy label on it now, and and you know, people are buying the products. The food industry has made several attempts to do its own front-of-package labeling system. Um, and there was one attempt about eight years ago um, where uh, the where they developed criteria for establishing a product as worthy of this particular logo that was going to go on to these, a check mark that was going to go on to these healthier products. And when the first one went on to Fruit Loops, um, 
it was there was an article about it on the front page of the New York Times that uh, caused a lot of ridicule. I mean, the idea that anybody would think that was more than 40% of the calories from sugar was healthy seemed kind of ridiculous <laughs> on its face. And the food industry was forced to withdraw that entire scheme. There were some lawsuits involved too. I mean, it was really a mess. It was a lot of fun to watch. I, I enjoyed writing about that a lot. <laughs> Do people pay attention to labels? Do they change um, people's buying or eating behavior? Is there any research on that? Oh, there's tons of it. Uh, people do not pay very much attention to the standard food labels except for looking at the calories and the sugar. Um, and, and that's understandable because when the FDA first developed the uh, nutrition facts label and the ingredient list rules in the early 1990s, they did a lot of consumer testing on a whole bunch of prototypes. And it turned out that nobody could understand any of the prototypes. <laughs> they were all absolutely opaque. And so the FDA picked the one that was least poorly understood. Um, but nobody really expected it to be understandable. And some people use it. I, I mean, I use it. But, you know, I teach nutrition. I'm supposed to know how to use it. And you have to be able to understand how the ingredient list works and how the um, nutrition facts panels works and put them together. But the nutrition facts panel is really hard to understand because some of the nutrients um, you want more of and some of them you want less of, and it doesn't say which ones are which. So you're supposed to know that. And you need to know that the ingredient that's listed first is the one that's highest by weight and that they're listed in order of, de of decreasing weight. But all of this is about selling food products. And if I, as a nutritionist, were going to be advising the public about what to eat, I would say eat food, not products. You know, least poorly understood <laughs> is not a very high bar, is it? No, it's not a high bar, um, unfortunately. And that's why everybody started food companies, health organizations, the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, all of these organizations and food companies like PepsiCo, um, started doing their own front-of-package labels and in order to simplify things for the public. And that was when the FDA, about 10 years ago, decided that it needed to do something about that. And this is the result of many, many years of trying to figure out what to do about front-of-package labeling. And it comes at a time when countries in South America, in Europe, um, and in places all over the world are putting front-of-package labels on that tell the public what not to eat. Um, something that is, seems pretty difficult to even contemplate in the United States. So in Chile, as I mentioned, they have these black warning labels on them. In Europe, they have something called Nutri-Score that gives a letter grade to a product, a composite letter grade. And, you know, an A is a good grade and uh, the higher letters are poor grades. And if you see a product that's a D or an E, you don't buy it. Uh, but we don't do that here. How powerful is the food industry? And I'm going to ask about what that means in a second. How powerful is the food industry in determining what Americans eat? Well, 
it, it hires lobbyists. Every food company has lobbyists in Washington who are paid full-time salaries to do nothing else but make sure that Congress doesn't pass any legislation that's likely to reduce product sales. You know, the way I like to put it is that food companies are not social service agencies, and they're not public health agencies. They're businesses, and mm. they work like any other business. They're absolute primary number one goal is to sell products and return money to shareholders. That's their job. If they don't do that, they're in trouble. So that is their single focused goal. And once you understand that, everything that they're doing makes sense. So they hire armies of lobbyists. I mean, I remember once when I was writing a book about, when I was writing soda politics about the soda industry, I think just Coke and Pepsi hired 67 lobbyists to work with Congress to make sure Congress never passed anything that might impair the sales or reduce sales or make Coke and Pepsi cost more or any of those things, let alone stopping their marketing to children, um, you know, which is what I'd like them to do. Uh, so, and advocates and public health people aren't paid full time to lobby. So it's in a, in a sense, it's a very, dis it's an unfair advantage that food companies have over public health advocates who would like to uh, get them to back off on some of their unhealthful pra practices. Um, so yes, they have power. They have the power that any other corporation has. Um, plus, because they're food corporations and they're not cigarette corporations, they are sitting at the table when public policy is being made. Um, you know, and they can argue that, you know, we're feeding the world, therefore we need to be at the table when we're talking about public policy. And I remember going to a conference in Washington during the, the time when Michelle Obama was working on her Let's Move campaign, and it was a meeting on food marketing, and afterwards we broke into small groups, and in my small group were food industry executives who said, we would love to stop marketing to children, but our stockholders won't let us. You know, it, you're making the point about the healthy label that it would probably be found mainly on processed foods is, quote, a healthy processed food, kind of an oxymoron? <laughs> I think so. You know, we, we now talk about, well, it depends on what the degree of processing is. Frozen foods are just fine. Um, you know, if you look at a frozen food label, it's got one ingredient, peas mm. or string beans or whatever. Those are fine. Um, we're not talking about general processing because all foods are pretty much processed before we eat them. We're talking about what are now called ultra-processed foods, a specific category that uh, encompasses foods that are industrially produced, don't look anything like the foods that they came from, uh, can't be made in home kitchens because you don't have the equipment <laughs> or, the, or the ingredients, um, and are now clearly shown to be associated with chronic disease, with our earlier mortality with, you know, all of these problems that we're trying to avoid. Um, and there's now a, a, a controlled clinical trial that demonstrates that people who eat diets that are based on these foods take in more calories 
500 more a day, a huge number of calories more than when they're eating foods that are minimally or unprocessed. Um, and we don't know why that is happening, but there's something about these foods. They're formulated to be absolutely irresistible, and nobody can resist them. You know, the, the FDA says that this healthy label is going to align healthy claims with current nutrition science, the nutrition facts label that already graces food packages, and the current dietary guidelines for Americans. I find that really interesting because from what I learned about food politics when I was writing Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy with Walter Willett, the FDA and the USDA Department of Agriculture can play fast and loose with, quote, current nutrition science. For each five-year update of the dietary guidelines, the FDA and USDA assemble a group of top-notch nutrition scientists, charge them to come up with evidence-based recommendations for healthy eating, and then often ignore it uh, in deference to, to food lobby, lobbying by food companies or agriculture interests. Have, have you ever been on one of those dietary guidelines committees? I was. What was it like? In 1995, well, it was a committee. And it had all of the strengths and weaknesses of a committee. Every single person who was on the advisory committee um, came in with um, his or her own agenda. I had my agenda. Other people had other agendas. And we horse traded. You vote for my agenda, I'll vote for yours. Um, and we saw evidence of food industry lobbying. They were permitted to testify. They were permitted to submit documents um, in their own interest. But at the time that I was on the, the committee, um, this was before electronic papers, um, and I had, f everything was in paper, and I piled all the studies that I was supposed to be reading in my office. It was, it went over my head. <laughs> um, obviously, I wasn't going to be reading that. Neither did anybody else. We couldn't possibly have read through all of that in any critical way. And that was just the research that had come out in the last five years. So everybody came in with their own biases and their own interests and their own belief systems. And somehow, out of all of that, a compromise report emerged. And the... Uh, I was still on it in the day when it was a little teeny pamphlet of, you know, just a few pages. Um, now it's 150 pages long and goes on and on and on and nobody can read it and nobody can understand it. Uh, it's gotten more complex and um, more difficult to read when, in fact, the basic principles are exactly the same. They've never changed. Eat more fruits and vegetables um, and then when you when it comes to what you're not supposed to eat, we switch to nutrients because we can't tell Americans what not to eat in terms of food. So eat less saturated fat, salt, and cholesterol. We can argue about how important an, an issue saturated fat is, but it's still in the dietary guidelines. And as long as it's in the dietary guidelines, everything else has to go along with it. And I'm not saying that saturated fat isn't a risk factor for heart disease, because as far as I could tell, it still is. It's just that we can't talk about foods when we talk about what not what we really need to eat less of. Because the minute you start saying eat less meat, the meat industry gets very upset. <clears throat> the Department of Agriculture gets very upset. 
Um, and Congress gets very upset. So to me, the USDA being involved in coming up with uh, dietary guidelines is a little bit like the Nuclear Regi Regulatory Commission, which not only promotes nuclear power, but regulates it. And the USDA is in that same position where it's it's trying to promote the industry that it's also trying to regulate. Yeah, I mean, it makes no sense at all. And for this, we have to blame the nutrition faculty, the nutrition academics who were in the Carter administration, um, who, because Health and Human Services wasn't interested in food and didn't want to have anything to do with it, captured uh, dietary advising and made the Department of Agriculture the lead federal agency for dietary advising. This was done in report language. It's not law, but it's report language. And so the dietary guidelines have to go through the Department of Agriculture. Health and Human Services and USDA alternate being in charge. But the guidelines don't change. They've said exactly the same thing since 1980. Uh, it's just that they say it in a longer and more obfuscating way <laughs> and make it more and more complicated when really dietary advice is so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in his famous seven words, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And really, that's all there is to it. As that was long, brilliant. As long as you define food as something that's relatively unprocessed. It was very funny to read his book that starts out with those seven words. And then he basically says, I've told you everything. I'm not sure how I'm going to write a whole book about this, but here I go. <laughs> right. Right. Oh. Well, speaking of books, you've written a dozen. You make near daily entries on food politics, the blog you started in 2007, write articles for medical and nutrition journals and more. Do you ever sleep? Um, yes, I sleep. I do. I follow my own lifestyle and diet advice, and I get plenty of sleep, mostly. Your latest book, Slow Cooked, was just published a couple weeks ago. And for listeners, it is not a book of crockpot recipes, <laughs> but a memoir about your, quote, unexpected life in food politics. If the title of your, your PhD dissertation is any indication... Your early scientific training focused on the building blocks of DNA and RNA. What nudged you toward nutrition? Well, I was handed a nutrition class to teach on my first teaching job. <laughs> and as I put, I was teaching in a cell and molecular biology in a biology department. And I was handed a nutrition class to teach because students wanted some human biology along with the cell biology. And um, it was like falling in love. And I've never looked back. You know, in the introduction to the book, you write, and I'm quoting here, Never did it occur to me that I would be considered one of the country's most hysterical anti-food industry fanatics, the anti-pleasure nutritionist. Why were you called that? Oh, it broke my heart. Well, that was after my book. <laughs> that was after my book, Food Politics, came out. And you know, in writing Food Politics, uh, in which is a book about how the food its, its subtitle is how the food industry influences nutrition and health. I thought I was stating the obvious. I was just doing for food what had been done for cigarette marketing. 
and showing how food companies' main purpose in life is to sell food products. Duh. You know, I mean, it didn't seem to me that it was very groundbreaking, but nobody else was writing about it, and so the book caused a lot of fuss. And those particular statements were posted on Amazon before the book came out, and probably before they had a chance to read it. So they were just basing it on what they had heard and thought that it wasn't going to be good for the food industry to be exposed in that way. Uh, but the idea that I'm an anti-pleasure fanatic just really uh, cut me to the quick because I got into this because I love food and I love eating more than anything. I think it's one of life's greatest pleasures. That is, That would be harsh. In your sort of long view of U.S. nutrition, do any particular episodes stand out as turning points, either for good or for bad, in U.S. food policy or politics? Well, the big turning points um, occur whenever a new dietary guidelines comes out. Um, there's always an enormous amount of fuss about that. I think the efforts of the Obama administration to improve school lunches were really important. Um, that entire effort, um, which was so strongly opposed, was a major turning point. And then the Biden administration's intervening in the COVID pandemic to make school lunches a universal and to make uh, and to increase food assistance for the poor were very important measures, and it's heartbreaking to see them rescinded when they were so important to do, particularly the school lunch one. I mean, it will, I, I will never be able to understand the idea that we should not feed children lunch in school, healthy lunches in school. It seems to me to be a bipartisan issue. Don't we all want kids to be healthy? It's, it seems like such an obvious thing to do. Uh, so I hope that'll get reinstated. Do you think the healthy label or any kind of healthy push is going to make a difference for programs like um, SNAP or WIC or any of the, the federal programs that try to give people healthy food? Well, they might. Uh, SNAP is an entitlement program that works by uh, giving people a credit card that they can use in grocery stores. It's a retail program, and they can buy whatever they want. Um, in that grocery store with very, very few exceptions. I grew up in the era when TV dinners were like just wondrous meals. Um, have, have Americans somehow shifted their eating patterns since the 1950s in a good way? Well, it depends on who you're talking about. Mm. Uh, whether you're talking about people who have money and education or people who don't. Uh, we have a sharply class-based food system in this country where, uh, or food intake system in this country where people with education and money eat very healthfully and people who don't have a lot of money and education can't because healthier food is more expensive. So until we do something about the way our agricultural supports work, um, which support the production of cheap ingredients in processed foods and do very little to support. I, actually, what we support in this country is feed for animals and fuel for automobiles. What we don't do is support the production of food for people. It seems to me that's an obvious thing to change. Whether we'll be able to change it or not is another matter. 
as it always is in policy, your specialty. Marion, I've learned a lot here and I expect listeners will too. Thank you for the work you've done to open Americans' eyes about food and politics and what you've done to help shift Americans' eating patterns in the healthy direction. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well as we continue to navigate the realities of COVID and the whitewater ahead.